Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Welcome back, Food and Faith Podcast listeners. Uh, today is actually the last episode of this season, quote unquote, uh, this the, the period of time that we've been working with. Um, so this will be our last episode for a while, then we'll take a break and we'll have some new episodes for you in the fall. Um, and I'm really glad that we have um, our, our original podcast guest on the show today because I wasn't around for that. Uh, Nuria Love Parish is, is um, she is, she was episode zero uh, of the podcast. So um, it was before the podcast was even really a thing. Um, and she is, she is executive director of Plainsong Farms and she's an Episcopal priest and she is a great friend and has been um, really at the forefront of connecting a lot of people um, in this Christian food movement and the work that we're trying to do in, in building connective tissue between people who are doing this kind of work. Um, I know that um, Noria was a big part of my introduction to this conversation and so I continue to be grateful for her presence and her leadership and all that she brings to the table. So Noria, welcome back. It's such an honor to be here, and I'm so excited for how faithfully the Food and Faith podcast has been producing. It is not a small thing to bring a podcast to life, and um, and it's not a small thing to bring a new ministry to life. (laughs) And so I salute you um, across the wires uh, for also beginning and tending new life. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. And, and appreciate, again, your cheerleading us along the way. Um, so we asked this question to begin uh, every episode. You've answered this once before, but love to hear any new reflections you have on this. Uh, what is your geography? What are the places, the foods, the culture, the music, the things that have shaped you, made you who you are? And maybe, um, yeah, what new reflections have you had on that particular question in the last couple of years? Well, I remembered that this was the introductory question, and it's perfect timing because one of the programs that we have at Plainsong Farm is a Saturday, a Sunday evening Sabbath at the farm. It's not, it's only in season, and it's only in summer, and it's not every week right now, but I was, I went to it this past Sunday. Emily Almer, our program director, who wasn't with us yet when we had the first when I was on the podcast before Emily created that program which is kind of a all ages worship and discipleship experience and at the center of the program um, after we had read a little scripture and sung a little song um, she invited us to take a piece of yarn and uh, mark our put ourselves into the landscape of the place um, and have it reflect our life and um I thought about that experience as I was getting ready to answer this question about geography today, because at first I was a little stymied. Um, Then I tied the middle of my yarn to a dead tree branch in the middle of the forest. um, And I tied each end to a strongly rooted tree. So, and I looked at my life and I thought, um, I, the place that I was born and raised is Las Vegas, Nevada. And that actually has um, kind of counterintuitively inspired everything else that I've done since leaving Las mm. Vegas. I left Las Vegas at 17 
and left with a lot of questions about why human beings thought it was going to work well to live there the way they were. <laughs> and I feel like in some ways that that dead branch in the middle of the ground was that childhood. Like it was not mm. well rooted. Mm. But what I've come to realize is there were people that were before me that were rooted in their place. And my prayer is that through some of, you know, not just my work, but the work of many, um, people that come after me will be more strongly rooted in their place. And I, I am more strongly rooted in my place now. I've lived in Michigan since 1997. And I was, um, I was told by somebody last week who is native to this place that she thought I was native to this place because I sounded like it. <laughs> so I've come a ways um, because I, I don't come by my Michigan accent by, you know, because I was raised here. Um, but this it, Michigan is now the place that shapes me. Um, I've gone from a desert geography to a peninsula geography. And I love the state of Michigan and every, every exploration that I give to it. And, you know, we take our, a lot of our vacations here, especially, you know, when I finally got a vacation in COVID, I still stayed in the state of Michigan. Um, it is so beautiful and it is so diverse and it has so many interesting issues and challenges. Um, and it has stories of, about the native peoples of this place that are just a little different than some of the stories that are elsewhere in the continent. And um, yeah, this is, I, I try to help, I try to let this place shape me um, more and more all the time. Mm. Uh, just following up a little bit on that last thing you said, how are the native stories of Michigan different from other places in the country? Well, I, I can't say I've put a whole lot into every other place in the country, sure. but I have recently put some time and attention um, in, and I'm still exploring this, into the Episcopal Church's relationship with the indigenous peoples of Michigan. Because one of the first people, um, and I'm an Episcopal priest, one of the first priests in the state of Michigan um, on this side of the state, which is my diocese, so my region, judicatory, mm -hmm people that I have relationships with. Um, the, one of the first priests here was paid with federal funding um, for a, a cultural assimilation and cultural genocide. But um, intriguingly, I just learned this into the last few weeks, um, there, the, the, um, the first leader of the Gun Lake tribe of Potawatomi Indians who, who began to articulate the need for that band to have federally recognized status, his first name was named, he was named for that priest. Mm. So he was born in 1880 and he was named for the priest who had died previously. Um, the priest was no longer alive at the time that this person, this, um, Selkirk Sprague, was named for James Selkirk. And I just find that fascinating. And in part, I, I, what I want to find out and I don't understand yet, and I'm reading, but I have to go to Ann Arbor, which is two and a half hours away to actually get source material and they're closed during COVID. So I haven't been able to do this. There are the people, the indigenous peoples of the place stayed in this place. Um, not all of them, um, some were uh, forcibly migrated, um, but some were, some remained, and I, I'm hypothesizing that some remained in part because of this exercise of um, kind of cultural genocide and assimilation that the Episcopal Church was part of. So 
it, this is not what I thought we were going to talk about. <laughs> That's, sorry for derailing you. <laughs> it connects to everything because originally in Michigan, um, people didn't farm here. You know, the Potawatomi were not an agricultural people. They were hunter, they were fisher, they also um, ate uh, the wild rice. Um, the story that, 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 they inherit is a story of needing to move west um, and to find the place where food grows on the water. That was the, that was, and they moved and they ended up in actually also, I think in Minnesota, but like and harvesting wild rice. <laughs> and that is such a, that's an amazing story that connects people, place and food, which I think is, you know, and that I now, you know, the, the Episcopal priest who was, you know, part of the culture and tradition that I inherit as a European Episcopal, you're a descendant of Europeans, Episcopal priest in Western Michigan. His job was to teach the first peoples how to farm. <laughs> Not sure how he learned how to farm, um, <laughs> but that, you know, again, is, is about people, place, and relationship to God. And so, um, I just can't, I, I'm excited to be able to share these things on the podcast because yeah. I mean, actually I'm not, not talking about them. I'm just like, they're going in my brain. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, uh, I feel like there's a lot more work to do there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm grateful to be committed to this place and to try to, um, to uncover that work and um, over the next few, you know, decades of my life, because that's slow work. Um, yeah. If you do that well, that's not, um, it's not fast work. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that reflection because as as I've been, um, one of the things I was challenged with very early as I, I began my study grant was to think about um, the ways that we decolonize some of our research, the ways that we decolonize some of our study and, and give... Um, proper respect to the extent that we can to the indigenous folks who were in the places where we are. Um, and so that's that's one of the things that has been percolating for me as well as 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 we're you know many of us thinking about these these food and land-based ministries, how do we in developing them pay homage, pay tribute, give honor, to the indigenous folks and their practices that that came before us, uh, that often were were displaced because of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's places of 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 lament and repentance, and there's places of of celebration and um, and and recultivating old practices. All of which, uh, again, I, I I'm in the same place as you, is where I, I have a lot more thinking to do about it. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm just kind of happy to have it, you know, like, yes, this is something that's important that we need to be, we need to be talking about and thinking about with these land-based ministries. Yes, this is something that's important that we need to be thinking and talking about with these land-based ministries. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And um, it's just, it, it is interesting to me because it's, it isn't like a general, there is no general, the general history is made up of thousands of these tiny stories. Mm-hmm. The story of James Selkirk is one story, but it is part of this bigger landscape. And yet our diocese has never dug into that story. Mm-hmm. And even when we have, we have one written history of the diocese, 
and it's an appendix. Hmm. It's, uh, which I think is fast, this history is from the 50s, I think. Um, it's fascinating to me that, you know, on the one hand, it's called out as important enough to need attention. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's not actually integrated into the story of the in diocese the body, as yeah. it was told and recalled at that time. Right. And you find yourself going, hey, did the guy write the whole book? And then somebody say, you left something out. <laughs> Um, and I don't know, because I, I, he's not with us anymore. And right. I, I haven't tried to track down the author of the history. But one of the other, th- I could go on like this. We, we <laughs> yeah, you're great. Keep but, going. Um, the other thing that's, the Episcopalians functionally abandoned that, that work when it stopped being funded by the federal government. Interesting. And um, I can connect that to my experience as an district developer today. <laughs> I need to be careful. I'm on a podcast. <laughs> I'll stop you before you say anything that gets you in trouble. But <laughs> I mean, I'll try anyway. I'll try anyway. But but I, I, again, I just I I appreciate that. You know, I think that we need to we do need to dive into these histories and these these individual these individual stories i think there's so much fascinating uh to be learned um so much information to be mined and and i think um you know it's about not repeating cycles of colonization you know it's about it's about recognizing for me anyway it's about recognizing uh those places where um the land was was commodified and the land was um and the people on the land were 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 objectified and and villainized in ways um while losing out on some really rich heritage and really rich stories and really important conversations um so uh let's shift gears a little bit um yeah, and there's, I guess I'm yeah, here. So I, like, and there's a lot to grieve mm-hmm. and there's a lot to lament and there's a lot to discover. And then there's also these, yeah, like you said, the patterns, we have to become aware of them before we can untangle them from our own lives mm-hmm. um, and our own, and the stories of our institutions that we participate in. Okay, yeah. so that's my, yes. Yeah, that's well, it's 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 helpful, and, and hopefully, like we should we should definitely revisit this conversation at some point. Um, but so, just for those who might uh, not have heard episode zero um, or not be familiar with Plain Song, tell us a little bit about the origins of Plain Song. Um, how did uh, God put this on your heart? Uh, you actually wrote a book about the story, a, a wonderful book, uh, which I don't think we talk about that enough either. Um, you wrote a wonderful book about this journey, your journey towards um, starting playing songs. So um, tell us a little bit about what what put this ministry on your heart. What what was the road that led you to where Plain Song is, and and uh, what does Plain Song look like now? So um, just to even go back to the question you asked all the way at the beginning, when I was growing up in Las Vegas, Nevada, it really was clear to me that human beings were not, well, we were not living in ways that were sustainable in the place, in in our place. Um, And I didn't understand why. Um, 
And I left Las Vegas with questions about why we and why I as a child like was enculturated into practices that were destructive to me and to the planet. I mean, I, I didn't understand, I wouldn't have put it that way. And, but, it, but that's, those were what my questions were. And I should say I left Las Vegas in 1988. So climate change wasn't even in the conversation for me as a 17 year old, but it, I still had the sense that something was very wrong. Um, and, and so I went out trying to figure out how could I be part of understanding what went wrong and trying to, mm, I don't know. I mean, like make it right is not, that's not going to work. <laughs> uh, so understanding what went wrong, wrong and, and trying to find a better way. I think that's like, how can I work to find a better way? And I ended up, as many people who end up in agricultural uh, world with liberal arts degrees end up, I read Wendell Berry. That was the 90s. And in the 90s, when I read Wendell Berry, I saw things that I hadn't seen before I read him. First of all, that food was inherently a connector between people and places. And the ways that we ate were inherently um, related to the ways that we treated the earth. It was fundamental. And with those insights, I started wondering, why is the church not doing more with food? And at that time, I mean, where is this is the 90s. I was like, well, I'm, I'm obviously the outlier. Nobody, nobody else <laughs> thinks the church needs to do anything with food. So, okay, I'll do church the way it always is supposed to be done. Um, I was a Unitarian Universalist Christian in my first ministry. I've been ordained since 97. Um, I came to Michigan to serve a new church plant and, um, and definitely in the Unitarian Universalist Association as a Christian, I was weird enough without doing anything, <laughs> anything else. That was plenty. Um, but then I, I eventually realized I needed a, a clearly Christian church community to belong to um, and became an Episcopalian and became ordained again in the Episcopal Church. And, and by then I lived at the property that, what, that became Plain Song Farm and um, outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I lived here for years. And over the years that I lived here, it became more and more evident to me that God was calling me to, to, have a, to, to begin a ministry here that was different from church as I had knew it to be. And um, so, and that helped people to, to, to cultivate those connections that were broken in, they were broken due to settler colonialism. Um, I didn't probably, I wouldn't have been able to say that in 20, what year did I, I tried to get started in 2013 when Fred Bonson published uh, Soil and Sacrament and I read uh, the story of Adama Farm, which is a Jewish farm in Connecticut that works integrating Jewish religious identity, um, religious cultural teachings and sustainable regenerative agriculture, um, primarily working with young adults. And I thought we need something like this for Christians. And that was really the inspiration uh, for Plainsong Farm, and with Mike and Bethany Edwardson, um, who are my co-founders, at the beginning, um, 
at the beginning, honestly, that's really all I knew. Like I knew, okay, it's a farm and it's going to grow up and be like Audemars. And <laughs> the Episcopal Church um, was willing to uh, risk as much funding as the Episcopal Church was willing to risk on anything along those lines um, at that time, which was $6,000 uh, a year for wow. three years. Wow. <laughs> and... <laughs> Yeah. And um, Mike and Bethany and I at the time were all dedicated to pretty to put, putting our whole lives, you know, as much of our lives as we could into this. I, uh, Mike and I both, Mike ended up um, working for a Methodist church as a children's director, and I ended up working for an Episcopal church as a priest. Um, and But what when we began, we were like, no, this needs to be our jobs. Um, $6,000 wasn't going to cut it. So when we began uh, between, you know, two households, <laughs> Right. So we um, this, we started community supported. When I say we, Mike and Bethany started a community supported agriculture firm, and we and we started donating produce. And that's really the like that is that would be Plain Song Farm in 2016, 2017. We started Sabbath at the Farm 2017, 2018. We started looking at we were established enough that I was looking for funding to start the young adult ministry. And we had our first cohort of young adults in 2019, and that was for a summer program. And then in 2020, uh, we had a pandemic. So we canceled the summer program, but we started a Good News Gardens program. And um, with our new program director, we um, started Pattern Days, which was an outdoor worship experience that was socially distanced and safe for people that you know, couldn't, weren't sure what was safe. This was definitely safe. And, um, and now it's 2021. And we have a new understanding, not like we've clarified our understanding of ourselves, that our mission is to cultivate connections between people, places, and God. And that the primary way that we do that is by tending a place that nurtures belonging and the radical renewal of God's world, which isn't something that I would have said on episode zero because we didn't have those words yet. Even though we had that work, we just weren't describing it that way. So our main program areas are farm-based education and food, um, food, healthy food access. Um, we have our young adult um, residential year of service, which is now connected to the Episcopal Service Corps. And we have an ecumenical community, which is both an in-person experience centered here with like the Sabbath at the farm experience and our board, which is a diverse board, um, religious, they're all, they're multiple Christian denominations are represented on our board. Um, but also that wider, more far flung, like you're part of my community, you know, the listener to the podcast is if they want to be, you know, I'm not into forcing people, but <laughs> they're part of the same community that I belong to. Um, and we, when we started, I started this Christian food movement guide in 2015, I said then I did not begin this, but I'm glad to belong. And I said then, I hope I said it, and I, I say it now, I believe Jesus started the Christian food movement by breaking bread at the Last Supper. And that means we were all invited to, to, to be included. But I also think that the Christian food movement is centered on the values of discipleship, um, ecology, justice, and health. And maybe those are values that um, we don't always see practiced by the Christian church all at the same time. Um, I see a lot of Christians doing food work, but not necessarily integrating ecology and health um, and justice. And, and, and it's because it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, there's not systems set up for that. But 
we we are called to begin to set up those systems um, because we can't pass on what we inherited. We inherited a Christianity that was broken by settler colonialism. Yeah. Um, and when I say we, I mean myself as a European Christian, a descendant of European Christians. Um, so that's a long explanation. Did that answer your question? It, uh, <laughs> it did. And, uh, you know, I uh, uh, there's a couple things there. One, I, I really appreciate your highlighting the connection between food ecology and health. Um, as as I was, I've been teaching this course um, for the bulk of 2021 on race and food, and one of the thing one of the things that I've been overcoming as the course has been developed has been um, food and health. I think is is people can get there. That's that's a leap. People can go. Okay, I what I eat, what goes in my body. Okay, eventually that will affect my health. Food and ecology. For some reason, there is a couple steps removed there for people. That that the understanding that food is the primary way that we interact with creation. It's mm-hmm. the primary way that we're interacting with the created world. And yet the way our food system exists right now actually creates a whole lot of separation between us and the created world. And so that's been, that's been a hurdle for people to like connect those dots between food and ecology and and I, and I i i appreciate your saying that those the you know i think when when a lot of ministries are are thinking about food they're they're thinking about feeding people mm-hmm. and like that's that's you know and 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 that's it's food into people's mouths food into people's stomachs and that's the end game and and to think about the fact that that can't actually be our end game. Like the health of people and the health of creation has to also be included in that conversation about food. Um, so I just, I just appreciate, I appreciate that observation. Um, I often see Christians getting um, accidentally sucked into the idolatry of money mm. because the reason that you know people will not think about the ecological consequences of their food when they're engaged in food ministry is because when you start thinking about it, things become more financially expensive. Mm-hmm. And right. often, and what I experience in a lot of Christians in food ministry, and, and that includes me, you know, I serve a congregation that has a food pantry. I am completely in this world. Um, it's, you know, how the goal is let's feed as many people as possible for the least amount of cost. Mm -hmm. And we Mm -hmm. only think of cost in terms of dollars. We don't think of cost in terms of the planet our grandchildren inherit. Mm -hmm. And if we thought of cost as the planet our grandchildren inherit, the financials become much less important. But we don't have an accounting system where once a month we review our books of what kind of impact if we had on the planet, our children inherit that that accounting system is not there is not a generally accepted practices for that kind of accounting um, yet. But that's one of the systems that we need to work towards. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, Nuria, remind me, I, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, out myself as a bad podcast host right now. Uh, remind me of the title of your of your book. 
Oh, uh, um, I'm going to out myself as a bad author. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Resurrection Matters, um, Church Renewal for Creation's Sake. I, th- I think. <laughs> we, will, we will fact check that at some point. Um, uh, yeah, Resurrection Matters was, you know, when I wrote that book, I was really, <laughs> I was before the pandemic, and I was mm-hmm. really thinking about the uh the fact that at that time, the average age in the Episcopal church was over 60. Mm-hmm. And we weren't great at having a conversation about how that meant we weren't relevant to young gener- younger generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because we weren't great at having that conversation, I didn't have much hope for us 30 years from now. And I thought, okay, but um, if God can breathe new life into this tradition, people, and and God can raise us from this sleepwalk. Uh, what is that zombie experience mm-hmm. that we, that we, you know, and when you, when you were not doing well at having hard conversations, you're not really alive. Um, then that resurrection could provide a, a people who do put the care of creation above their bank balances and their reputations because that's what God teaches us to be. Now, I, I still pray for that for myself. Yeah. Um, but that's what I hope to be. Mm-hmm. What lessons either from, from your experience with plain song since writing the book or, or from the pandemic, do you think, uh, what's when you, when you write your second edition of the book, uh, what, what do you think the church needs to know to kind of continue this conversation? What are some learnings that have come in the last couple of years that you think would contribute to that particular conversation? Cause I think it's important. And, and by the way, you know, my denomination, the Presbyterian church is not far behind you in any of those demographics in terms of average age, you know, average size of congregation. Um, we're, we're, we're pretty much neck and neck there. Um, what, what, would, what would you say the last couple of years of experience would add, to, would add to that conversation that you got started in the book? Hmm. Um, I did not realize when I wrote the book that talking about church-owned land would be so interesting to everyone except <laughs> the church. <laughs> be an exaggeration, but um, after the book was published, I started doing work on, um, with the General Convention of the Episcopal Church, Um, I brought a resolution to inventory the land that we held, and to, and I, uh, create uh, resources to help, help churches partner with other organizations for land, land connected ministry, Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, some of this is on me. Like I've been, I, I, there are things that I have to deliver by the next general convention that I, I need to get busy with. That's the year from now now because of the pandemic. But also um, what I learned then doing the work, which um, I ended up doing on behalf of a task force of the Episcopal Church was that it, it kind of was almost like as bad as I thought. Mm. So the Episcopal, or maybe worse, like the Episcopal Church has been um, on the continent of the United, what we now call the United States of America since before it was called the United States of America. But what we didn't value culturally 
was understanding the land over which we had authority in in the Midwest anyway. Like they might understand this in the Diocese of New York because that's where a lot of things happened that they that I think that Diocese of New York did does value their land holdings in terms of acres. But the bishops that I ended up talking to doing research on does your diocese understand its land holdings basically told me no. Mm-hmm. Our churches hold their hold it, their land and we don't know we we as a diocese did not inherit this church owns this many acres. This church owns this many acres. The systems are all set up for mortgages on for mortgages. Um, the Episcopal Church knows who has what mortgage, money, mm-hmm. and buildings. Mm-hmm. But the Episcopal Church doesn't know how many acres its congregations hold mm-hmm. uh, across the board. There's not a system for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, is a huge gap and a sad one. Mm-hmm. especially in a world where we're probably going to close churches. And when we close them, are, how are we going to see them? Right. Are we going to see them as a building that we have to sell for money? Or are we going to see them as God's creation that could be tended to mitigate a climate crisis and build right. local resilience for communities and the planet? I don't think we're going to see them that way. And it's really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, and I, um, so if I'm, if I'm writing some next things, I, I hope, I, I hope I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get some time to start writing again because mm-hmm. the one thing about starting a new organization is it, if it works, you're really busy. Yeah. Um, but I think as a consequence of the pandemic, we've accelerated our church decline um, crisis significantly. Mm-hmm. And so I feel, uh, you know, I think we may find a number of congregations saying, I can't sustain this place anymore. In our polity, that then goes to the judicatory, the diocesan level. Um, the congregations in our polity don't get to make their own decisions about what happens to their land and buildings. Um, and I wonder if we'll have sufficient imagination to realize that actually God can do things with, you know, God is already doing things um, that bring new life to people and places, even when it doesn't look like uh, what we're used to seeing the church look like. And maybe it could even be without, with people who don't even, um, I, who don't identify in our tradition, but yet would value what our tradition holds. If, yeah. I'm going to say, say a few more things here. I'm a convert to Christianity. Um, I became a Christian as an adult. I was baptized at 25. And the most valuable thing in my life is the work of Jesus Christ for my salvation. Now, if you had told me when I was 15 that I would ever say that, I would say, I would say, <laughs> are you kidding? Those Christians are crazy. They don't believe in facts and they don't believe in science. And I'm not interested in having any relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I thought that was because that was the version of Christianity I saw. I didn't know there was another version of Christianity. Right. And it just really makes me mad that people like the tradition that you and I both come from who are perfectly willing to accept science 
um, don't have, uh, there's not a widespread public understanding that you can also be a Christian and have a sense of meaning, purpose, and value in your life that you don't get outside an inherited multi-generational ancient tradition. I think I just got on a soapbox. No, great. That's what podcasts are for. (laughs) Podcasts are are basically soapboxes. But I so so appreciate that because I, I think that we have to... Uh, if nothing else, while, you know, for a year and a half and, and for many places more, so many of our buildings have sat empty on Sunday mornings and sometimes throughout the week. If if this hasn't made us think about our land and our land usage, then nothing will. Um, and and I, it's absolutely the right time to be having these conversations. It's absolutely the right time to be thinking about our land and 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 our our ancestral connection to land that scripture talks about land over and over and over again and what it means to be the people of god on a particular piece of land um we had we had a couple folks from the um agrarian trust on the show a couple uh episodes ago talking about the faithlands toolkit and and really the work that's being done there and i know that you've been connected with them and some of that work as well but but just the 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 larger conversation that's happening about getting people to think more creatively and more faithfully honestly about about how we use land and how we relate to land as people of faith. Yeah, the agrarian tra- the toolkit is a wonderful resource. Um, it grew out of the first gathering um, of what you know. I, I think none of us quite know what it is anymore, or if we ever did. But it was started as a conference um, that I worked on with Severin von Charner Fleming out of Greenhorns. Um, and Steve Schwartz out of Interfaith Sustainable Food Collaborative, and Andrew Kong Bartlett out of the Presbyterian Hunger Program. Um, I feel like I'm missing somebody, Kathy Roof out of Land for Good. Um, and that we worked on that conference uh, in 2017 and we had it in the beginning of 2018. And then that's where the Faithland Toolkit came from. And Agrarian Trust was kind of being born um, as an organization right at that same time. And because it was an interfaith conversation and conference, um, it, we they ended up holding that work because you know it was a they were willing to be to hold an interfaith um, an, an interfaith project around land land use um, and they saw it as aligned with the, their primary work with the commons trying to get more land into the commons and it's been really interesting to me to recognize that um, you know religiously held land theoretically is already commons right now I. It, it isn't, it doesn't, it's not privately held. We, we, we tend it on God's behalf. That That's, now we're not used to thinking about it that way, but that's what our tradition teaches that we're supposed to do. It, the earth is the Lord's. Right. It doesn't say that the earth is, you know, the congregation of XYZ. It's the earth is the Lord's. And here's this particular piece of earth. It belongs to God. I'm a person. I belong to God by virtue of my baptism. The land belonged to God. It didn't need to be baptized. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if we put God first in that relationship, what does it call us to do with that land? Does it, how, how are we called to tend it differently? And I think that's, that's the reframing that needs to happen in a lot of faith communities is, is if we, we, 
start with that notion that the earth is the Lord's, if we start with Genesis 1-1, if we start with uh, those sorts of assertions that we all make, then there are certain responsibilities on us as people of faith. Um, stewardship responsibilities for us uh, around the land and, and the usage of land. Um, another recent uh, guest we had on the show was John White, who is the organizer of the Sustaining Church Conference. Um, and uh, you will be a part of that in a couple of different ways. Um, so uh, um, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got connected to the conference and sort of what your, uh, just give a little teaser of what you're, what you're planning on, on presenting at the conference for, for folks who will be attending. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad that they're putting this together. I think it could not be anything that is more important right now um, for to, than to think about faith communities in the age of climate crisis and with a particular focus on food and agriculture ministry. Um, and, you know, it kind of connects even to what I was just talking about. We, we inherit uh, such a, a tradition of brokenness in our relationships between people and land and, and God. That I, I think, and I, that brokenness goes all the way back to the displacement of peoples that started, you know, five, six hundred years ago, um, some of it by choice, some of it by violence. And I think it's going to take hundreds and hundreds of years for us to find our way into more healing ways of being together. Um, and I don't anticipate being around for that. So my hope has been at Plain Song Farm to start experiments and to um, cross-pollinate across generations. And so that's a little bit of what I'm gonna be talking about is about some of those experiments that we have done. Um, what does it look like? Um, we're not the only living laboratory farm, um, that faith-based farm in the world, um, but we are one. Uh, there's not a whole ton of these. <laughs> Um, we've been around a while now, which is kind of truly a miracle of the Lord. Um, and so we've had some time to, to try things and to think about them and to try them differently and, um, and to learn from them. And, and experiential learning is really at the heart of what we do. And honestly, I think the person that's learned the most is me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because I needed a lot, you know, I needed to learn a lot and I still need to learn a lot. And so I'm looking forward to just sharing some of the things that I've learned um, through, through seeing things come to life that I've never seen anywhere else. I, I love that, um, that sort of intergenerational focus uh, that that really excites me that you're going to have that focus of, of thinking about um because it is going to take centuries this isn't the work of a lifetime if it was the work of a lifetime it wouldn't be worth doing and thinking about who are going to be the people that we pass the baton to um who are we going to pass this work off uh, to whom are we going to pass this work off, and 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 how can we even make space for them to add their own uh, twists and their own their own losses on the things that we might get off the ground? Um, I think that's a really important conversation, and again, another one of those conversations that it feels like the mainline church isn't great at having of, of mm -hmm. thinking about passing. Um, 
passing ministry on and preparing the leaders of the future and making sure that we're thinking of true sustainability, not just the financial elements of sustainability, but a real sustainability that's going to last um, into a future that is um, that is more whole and more just. Um, I, I, I love that. That makes I was already excited to hear you uh, at the conference, but I'm more excited to hear that now. <laughs> Well, and you've been working on something that's going to happen at the conference, Derek. I, I have been, um, and you've been a big part of that as well. Um, and and that is, so we're going to um, finally premiere the um, the first episode um, of uh, A Wilderness Like Eden, um, which is this film on, on the Christian food movement that... Um, we've been talking about for two years that's been in various forms of production uh for about a year and a half um and 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 so jason our filmmaker who we spoke to i guess that was last week or two weeks whatever what is time um you know he came to plain song sort of in the heat of the of the pandemic um and, and and you have, you, I think as as we've heard in this conversation, you have such a uh, you have such a beautiful and eloquent way of reflecting on on the work that your ministry is doing, um, and connecting it to the larger movement of what God is doing. Um, and, and so I, I'm wondering how it's felt to think about. Uh, putting some of those thoughts on film, having some of those thoughts captured in that way, sharing, sharing your thoughts, sharing your ministry. Uh, you know, there were there were there were obvious limitations on what we were able to shoot because of the pandemic and things of that nature. Um, and hopefully, we'll be able to do more down the road. But um, what was that? What was that process like for you of of thinking about? Um, uh, just being able to tell part of parts of Plain Song's story and, um, and and to tell that particular piece of it that was that was Plain Song in pandemic. It was um, scary, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't been um, in a lot of movies, and in fact, I think this is the only one. <laughs> Um, and so there is the first one. It's the first one. It's the first one. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. um, and I, you know, here Jason shows up and he's got all the equipment and he's got good questions and I have to open my mouth and pray that the right thing comes out. Um, so, but it was also an incredible honor um, to be able to feel like um, I remember when I, when there was, it was hard to find people who were doing this work. Uh, I remember when I was telling people in the church that I was felt called that was God was calling me to start playing song farm. And, and they just looked at me like I had lost my damn mind. <laughs> and, um, I, and so to be at this point where Jason can say, you know, sadly, we can't get everyone in the episode. Mm -hmm. We are going to have to focus on just these four people. We'll have to grow this later, you know, and you and both of you having that mindset. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, because it's it's true that there's something that God is doing in this in this work right now, and and I have seen that as somebody who you know once upon a time I collected every link that I could find that was a Christian food movement related, and that was twenty I think that was twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, and then I was like oh I'm going to get back to that and update it, and then I realized that it was not possible anymore because it was growing so fast. And I have such a weird perspective on the work of God because I have a one foot in the institutional main line and I love it. I'm dedicated to it. I, I get elected to offices on its behalf. I tend it. I care about it. it. It's not doing so well. I'm going to have another foot in this Christian food movement world. And it astonishes me daily with its exponential growth and relevance to young generations. I love it. I tend it. It doesn't have any offices to be elected to. (laughs) Maybe let's keep it that way. (laughs) I I, I mean, I'm doing what I can. Um, but you know, it also, it, and that's what I wonder about for it. I wonder what is, what is, mm-hmm. what does it need to become to steward the work of God mm-hmm. intentionally? I'm old enough that I remember the emergent church movement Yeah, and Same. that did not, um, I always felt like there was more potential there than was actualized mm-hmm. because of a lot of factors that are not the point point of this podcast, um, <laughs> uh, but I do I like I remember thinking about that when I did the Christian Food Movement guide at the beginning, going, "Let me not build into this some of the pitfalls. Let me not build into my work some of the pitfalls that I saw get built into the emergent church world." And um, some of those pitfalls were like a lack of clarity on how you belong. Um, and I think with this, it's sadly, I, I don't think I've avoided it. It's not mine to hold, thank God. Um, but it's still, they're not very clear on how to belong <laughs> all over again. And yet, you know, I would say today, I would say, well, you be, you belong by getting started. You be, and, and that's what they, but that's what they said in the emergent church world. <laughs> And and I remember being a, not an insider in that world and going, yeah, you say that, but it's not going to work the same way for me as it worked for you right. because I'm not an insider. I don't have a book contract. I don't have a book. I'm not on a speaking tour. So how does this really work? And I, so I still sit with those questions. Um, and I feel like at Plain Song, like what, what, as we kind of right now, one of the things we're wondering about is, well, what is the future of our ecumenical community? Like the community of people that are connected to us. I sit with those questions in relation. I sit with those kind of like, how do we, how do we are just one organization in a much larger movement and conversation. What is our role? What is the work that is ours? And what is the work that is not ours? I don't, we don't know that right now. It's July of 2021 and, and um, it's okay. Cause we're, we're still pretty young. We're like first or second graders. It's okay to not know what your work is when you're in first or second grade. I look at this film and I think about who is featured in this film. And I think that 
maybe, maybe, maybe we have sidestepped one of the bigger issues that the emerging church movement had, which is that the faces of representation that are coming out for what the Christian food movement looks like are so varied, are so diverse, and it looks like so many different things. Mm. Um, and I think it's that I think it's that diversity. Um, there, there's there's this there's this connective tissue that is food, and there's this connective tissue that is um, being place based. But there is this diversity in the expressions of it that is um, based off of the fact that we are all very local thinkers. We're all thinking very locally. Um, we're be, we're all, we're not thinking about a thing that can be mass produced and that's going to work in every different location because that's just not how farming works. That's not how growing things works. And so I think uh, you know. And again, we'll make our own mistakes, and 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 uh, and I'm sure I'll be a part of that. But I I am I am very mindful of the fact that there is a there is a beautiful diversity, and and you know the film is again just scratching the surface of that that diversity of what that this can work in in urban Baltimore and it can work in rural Carroll County, Maryland, and it can work in Michigan and it can work in Milwaukee and it can look like its own thing in all of those places. And, um, and, and none of it be wrong. None of it be, um, yeah, there, there's, there's not a whole lot of outsidering that can happen here. Um, so that's yeah, a thing that I, I, I think, think. I agree with you. And I also, one of the things that stands out to me, and I don't think I've noticed this before, is there's a character of humility mm. in this conversation. And I think it's because we all, those of us who participate in, in work like this, recognize that we are up against some pretty serious principalities and powers. Yeah. And we aren't bigger than they are. God is bigger than they are, but we are not bigger than they are. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, what 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 small piece of work can we do it, it, there's not a lot of i have really guarded against any kind of grandiose claims for what human beings are going to be able to do <laughs> <laughs> um, and i do that very intentionally because i know i'm not going to be able to live up to them i'm just trying to like make one inch of small progress in my lifetime and pass that along because yep. that's all i can do and I, I appreciate that. I think that is a different character than like a, we're here to change the world or we're here to change the church or whatever, like that energy that I remember from those other days is not, I don't have that. And, and I don't see other people that have that. They're, they're trying to not change the church. They're trying to feed people and make justice and care for creation. Like those are hard things to do. And the people that are in this movement are doing the hard things and I am so grateful to be among them. Yeah. Likewise. And a lot of them do harder things than I do. <laughs> so. so we end all of our conversations with the question of what is giving you hope? And 
that is not a hope that ignores the challenges that are are in front of you, but a hope that gets you out of bed every morning despite the challenges. You know, I remembered that you began with the geography question and I forgot that you ended with that. <laughs> um, I am in a half an hour, we have CSA pickup at the farm. So in half an hour, I'm going out to CSA pickup and it will give me hope. And one of the reasons that it will give me hope is people will come to the farm and they will leave with delicious, fresh produce, organically grown from this place with, um, that was cared for, that was cared for well. And they, they will take that into their bodies and they will care for their bodies well. And, and part of that will happen because I'm trying to, I'm trying to care for this organization. <laughs> um, and we're all, you know, it's the foundation of love that God put at the beginning of creation is what gives me hope. And to whatever degree that I can reflect that um, and be part of community of other people reflecting that, that's, there's nothing more. Yeah. Wonderful. So, Daria, how can people connect with you, connect with the work that you're doing, connect with Plain Song, all the, go ahead and plug all the, plug all the things. Uh, I, I should plug the book. I, I did that around here somewhere. Resurrection Matters. Uh, now that I remember, I knew what the title was. I just wasn't sure about the subtitle. Church Renewal for Creation's Sake um, is the book. But I think Plain Song Farm, we're going to do a website. We're, re, we're redoing the website right now. So you want to sign up for the email list um, so you get notified when the new website goes live because it's going to have much more about who we are than the website that we currently have, which I built for free. You might have remembered how little funding I had at the beginning, and I am not a web designer. So that website um, is going to go away, um, and the new one will have more opportunities for people to connect with us um, coming soon. So plainsongfarm.com, and that's where you can sign up for the email list. And of course, you know we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, Facebook, we're on Instagram. We have a YouTube channel, um, which we were uploading some things to during the pandemic, but some of our best stuff is um, not public because it's for people in our programs, but um, that are like the Good News Gardens Bible study um, that we created during the pandemic, helping people that are growing food in all of their various places, whether it's your church garden or your home garden, to make deeper connections with God through through the Bible and through the themes of ecology and justice and health that are present and evident in scripture. So that program is also not, it's not available right now because we just closed it last month. So we, we do one cohort a year, but if you sign up for the email list, you will be um, notified the next time that we have a cohort of that as well. So the email list is really the best thing. Excellent. And I want to make one other plug, one additional plug uh, for Plain Song. I bought about a year ago, I bought a Plain Song Farm t-shirt and it is one of the most comfortable t-shirts that I own. And it is like probably one of the most complimented t-shirt like i have never had like a, an organization like a faith-based organization t-shirt get complimented when i'm like out in the general public so i want to just go ahead and say like well done on making a really good t-shirt that that's like that's a that's a 
I don't know. That's an accomplishment in and of itself for for a for a faith community. Um, I take zero credit for that, <laughs> but I'm going to pass along that compliment to our honorary fourth co-founder, Polly Hewitt, who did it. <laughs> I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was a Polly project. So yeah. Excellent. It's it's uh, and I'm I'm sad I'm not wearing it now, but I I it's only because I wore it earlier in the week and it's in the and laundry. Bethany. I can't remember. It was Polly and Bethany did a lot of our design work um, in the earlier days when we were doing you know like when that t-shirt came to life. So yeah. Yep. Beautiful logo, beautiful design, great t-shirt, super comfortable. Uh, five stars would recommend. Thank you, um, <laughs> Nuria. I I could talk to you all day, and I, you're, I I absolutely love talking to you, and I'm so grateful for your work. I'm so grateful for your heart and and the ways that you are able to articulate your heart. And uh, I'm just thank you for being with us, and thank you for sharing all that's going on with you. Thank you for tending the Food and Faith podcast and creating community and all these connections that of people that have that know that somebody cares about their work because you do and you take time to listen and engage. Well, it's a thank you. To be here. Thank you. Appreciate you so much. Take care. We are excited to invite you to a free conference this summer. It's called Sustaining Church, Reimagining Communities of Faith in a Climate Crisis. The aim of this conference is to bring together theological thinking on creation care with those that are actively growing or starting Christian communities that care for land. The hope is that this will be the first of many conversations that inspire further theological thinking around caring for creation, as well as an opportunity to network and empower localized growing communities of faith. The conference will be held over Zoom, so even though it's in the UK, you can take part. Some of our keynote speakers will be familiar to fans of this podcast. Nuriel of Parrish, Ellen Davis, and Norman Worsba, just to name a few. A full list of speakers and tickets can be found at www.hazelnutcommunityfarm.com. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.